If you have a Bible, you can open it to Job. Job 19. You may know, perhaps, that Job is understood by most to be the oldest book in the Bible. And as such, I would suggest that we should consider Job to be preparation for all of Scripture. Job and the story that it recounts, the events that it relates to us, and the theology that it gives to us, which is rich, should cause us to recognize all of Scripture in the light of it and be prepared to receive the rest of God's story of redemption. Job sets the stage of redemption, as it were. And here in these few verses... We get a glimpse of what Job could see on that stage, even as he heard other voices speaking in his ear. Job 19, verse 23 and following. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart faints within me. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray again that you would be at work in our stony, cold hearts and open them up, open our eyes, that we, like Job, might see you, that we might see your good gospel for us, that we might see and believe and have life in your name because of what you have accomplished for us in our Redeemer who lives. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Be seated. This is, I think, one of the most profound passages of Scripture. It's fascinating to me to read it and to see it because it's a statement that we might, out of context, assume or expect even comes from an apostle facing martyrdom. Some apostle in the New Testament, under the Roman Empire, under the pressure of being forced to recant what he believes and refusing to do it, we would expect for him to say words like these. And so, these words come at a time and a place that by all accounts they should not. Job, as I mentioned, is, according to many, to most even, scholars, one of, at least one of, if not the oldest book of the Bible. It was the first one that we know of, and in some sense, we don't know with certainty when or exactly uh, how it was recorded, but there are really two dates in that question. One of those dates is regarding the events of Job's life. When did the man live? When did these things happen to him? Some suggest that he was a contemporary of Abraham, maybe older. The other date in question is, when did these words get written? When did this story, as we have it now, find pen to paper, according to the one who wrote it? Nobody expects that Job himself actually wrote it. Someone else did with the oral and written traditions that they received under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as they put it down on paper 
and we now have it in our hands in our Bibles. We don't know for sure when these events and when the writing took place, but we know that it's one of the oldest books in Scripture, if not the oldest. And so that begs a question for us. If, as we believe, God sovereignly ordered his self-revelation to unfold as he saw fit, and we can confidently say that he did, then why start here? I mean, of all places, why start here with this story of Job, which you know, everybody knows the story of Job. Why start here? Genesis is crucially important, of course. We would be remiss not to say that. Genesis is absolutely crucially important. It begins at the beginning. But Job begins at the beginning in a different way, in a practical way, I guess we could say. Not that Genesis is not practical, but Job is extremely so. Job begins at the beginning in a practical way because it gives the big picture of man reconciling the suffering that he endures under the fall that happened in Genesis 3, reconciling that suffering with the God that he knows. Job, the account, the story, the book that we have in our Bible, Job gives us all of the creation, redemption, and Uh, creation, fall, and redemption account, the whole redemptive story of Scripture. It gives us creation in that God made Job and all that he has and all that surrounds him. It gives us the fall in that God allowed Satan to approach Job and bring about the affliction that he did. God allowed it. And it shows us redemption in that God reestablished Job in the end, not for anything that Job had done, but quite the contrary. It gives us the whole picture of the redemptive story. And in the midst of all of that, it shows us the struggle of good over evil and and the transformation of a man from his approach to his maker, going from approaching his maker as appeasing God as a fickle adversary to submitting to God as a loving sovereign. That's the transformation that happens in Job. In just a few words, these few verses that we read cover really a ridiculous amount of theology. I hope you notice that. I mean, they really do. They cover everything from God's relationship to man to a sense of final justice to suffering and to the resurrection and the new creation to the new heavens and the new earth and even a theology of longing, a theology of desiring, which we all struggle with. These verses cover all of those things and more in just a few words. So what's the story? What's the story? It's this. There was a man whose name was Job. He was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters and great wealth. In fact, he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. And one day the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant, Job? And so at that moment began a divinely appointed trial that would transform a man and would then challenge thousands of generations up to this very present day as they and we strive 
to understand the trials of life and the God who rules all things. All that Job has is taken away. His children, his wealth, his health, it's all taken away. And even his wife tells him to curse God and die, which he refuses to do as she suggests, but perhaps he does in other ways. Then three of his friends, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, appear very intentionally, as we might expect ourselves to do and hope ourselves to do. You know, these three guys, they don't get the credit that they actually deserve because they do something that none of us would probably want to do. Do you know what they did? They showed up at Job's doorstep, as it were. I guess he had no doorstep by then. He was simply lying on the plains in his pain. They showed up with Job, and they wept with him, and they sat with him in silence for seven days. For seven days, they sat with him in silence. They didn't say a word because they knew that they had nothing to say to him until Job spoke. Job broke the silence, and then they opened their mouths, and in a misguided effort at at friendship, they spoke. And these are some of the things that they said. Job, as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. In other words, what? Job, you're guilty of something. They also said this, Job, you need to know that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. That one was just a little bit more direct, wasn't it? Job, you're guilty of something. Another one said, Job, surely yours are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is a place of him who does not know God. Job, you're guilty of something. Come on, what is it? You hear what his friends did? They reversed conventional wisdom. What they did is they took conventional wisdom, wisdom which says that Ordinarily, that's a key word, ordinarily, if you do right, good things come of it. And ordinarily, if you do wrong, consequences will result. Ordinarily. And they reversed that conventional wisdom. They said to Job, look at your consequences. Now, what wrong did you do? They reversed the conventional wisdom, and that was their mistake. And thus, an important truth in the book of Job, which is this. Trouble does not necessarily mean sin. That's something that we all have to take away from this. Trouble does not necessarily mean sin. Having started well, Job's friends, sitting with him in his grief, then try to justify God to Job with simplistic answers. And they just don't do the trick. Perhaps hundreds of years before Moses brought the law down from the mountain... These men brought Moses to Job's ears. And with Moses in his ears, Job catches a glimpse of something else. Jesus. Somehow Job catches a glimpse of Jesus. I don't know how. Other than to say that the Lord gave it to him. I don't know how else to say it. Because there was no scripture written down for Job to have known. He didn't know anything that was in writing, how would Job know? How would Job be able to see something while these words were coming into his ears? Somehow he could, because the Lord allowed him to see it. Long before the Lord appeared, before any scripture was written, the Lord gave him eyes to see. So what we have to see is that when the, the world brings to you Moses to explain your troubles, in the midst of it, how will you see Jesus? 
Job offers us a few suggestions here. Job sees Jesus through God's enduring word, and so ought we to do the same. Verse 23, Job writes unwittingly, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in rock forever. I mean, what a fantastic prophetic statement that is. Isn't it? Remember, the Bible isn't written yet. And yet Job is exclaiming this desire. Oh, that my words were written. They're amazing, especially given the gospel that he's about to proclaim in the next verse. But even in the midst of all of his struggle, it's amazing that Job Job would say these words in the middle of his struggle that he doesn't really understand. Job actually foreshadows an extremely, extremely vital and important means for seeing Jesus. Oh, that my words might be written in a book. Oh, that my words might be inscribed in a book, that they might be engraved in rock forever, that they might be permanent. Words are important in the book of Job. If you've read it before, maybe you noticed that. They are important for the contrast that the book shows between words that matter and words that don't. There are three cycles of words throughout the book of Job. If you take a look at a survey summary quickly through the book, you'll see that his friends offer three cycles of words. Eliphaz speaks to Job, and Job responds to him. And then Bildad speaks to Job, and Job responds to him. And then Zophar speaks to Job, and Job responds to him. And they go through that sequence three times. There are a lot of words. All four of these men have a lot of words to speak, and it becomes tedious if you read it, actually. And that's part of the point. That's part of the point because too many words are not helpful. It's somewhat ironic, I think, that we always feel the need to fill the space with words, but so often they mean nothing at all. My uh, class that I'm taking right now in this counseling program requires that I write a few pages regarding an event in my life that brought suffering to me. And it's been uh, a challenging exercise just to get started because I really honestly have to say I feel kind of like the kid at the prayer meeting who can't think of anything more than the math quiz next Monday or my grandmother's uh, sick dog to pray for. That's kind of all that I have. I just can't see that I've ever really suffered besides, you know, a sports injury or pledge training in college for my fraternity or, you know, some personal conflict with someone. That's, a, that's really about it that I can think of. I, I can't think of when I've suffered as I think of suffering. Not like my brother who 15 years ago held in his hands his prematurely and stillborn twin sons. That's suffering. And I didn't know what to say. I had no words for him other than, I'm sorry, I hurt for you. I don't know what to say to our family friend who lives in Tennessee whose life was filled with all kinds of promise and potential and ability socially and professionally coming out of college and into his early career until his first son was born and diagnosed with autism, which is a very challenging condition for a parent to have with any one child. 
And then his second son was born with a more severe case of autism. That's suffering. I don't know why the Lord gave that to him. And I don't know what to say to him. I have no words. Job's friends had lots of words, but they meant nothing. They meant nothing. But Job's God would record his words, and they would mean everything. Job's God would record his words, and they would mean everything. You see, Job had a shift in theology. It's a crucial shift that every one of us has to take at some point. If you've not yet, you're in the process of doing it. We all have to make this shift from seeing that God is my adversary whom I have to please in order to gain the peaceful life that I want. That's what Job was. To seeing that God is my sovereign who cares for my soul by defeating evil even while using it to correct my vision. That's what Job became. And God's word, which would endure for thousands of years after Job's simple and ignorant wish, consistently says to us with 1 Peter chapter 4, you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Overjoyed when His glory is revealed. When the sounds of Moses ring in your ears, see Jesus through God's enduring word. And that word includes an enduring promise. One that somehow Job took hold of. Again, I don't know how he did this. Apart from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit giving him eyes to see something that was not yet recorded, Job calls us to see Jesus through God's enduring promise. Verse 25, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end He will stand upon the earth. That's a great gospel statement. It's one of the greatest gospel statements in Scripture. It's been used countless times in songs and poems. I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, He will stand upon the earth. Where did Job get that? I don't know, but he did. I have to wonder if Job was somewhat mixed in his motives in saying it. If he was somewhat filled with self-righteousness, which he was, which he struggled with throughout the book, you know, suggesting and stating, even declaring, I will be proved right in the end. And somebody else will say it about me. Look, Job was right. Job was full of self-defense. His friends have suggested his guilt to him multiple times, and he has multiple times shown a willingness to self-defend, which is always a very, very dangerous prospect. Always. And so another important truth that we have to take away from Job, which is the one who self-defends will never stand in the end. Never. Job self-defends, but he will never stand in the end because the gospel is not for self-defenders. You can't declare yourself to be righteous. Even if you feel more right than those around you, you can't declare that for yourself. Was Job righteous? Well, compared to others around, maybe. But compared to God? Never. Never. 
despite the self-righteous edge that I think Job shows here, which soon would be corrected very firmly, still it's a statement of gospel promise. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, He will stand upon the earth. In the end, I know that He will. It's a statement of justification. It's a statement of Old Covenant, Old Testament justification that's just as good or better than Paul would have ever said to the Romans. God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God because He's the one who stands in the end as our Redeemer. When the world brings Moses to explain your troubles, you have to see Jesus through God's enduring promise. Conventional wisdom says, ordinarily, ordinarily, if you do right, good things will come of it. And ordinarily, if you do wrong, consequences will result ordinarily. But the truth of Job is twofold. Troubles and trials do not necessarily mean sin. And peace and prosperity do not necessarily mean righteousness. Only one thing means righteousness. Only one. Justification by Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And that's all. And that's the promise of Job's statement. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand He alone will stand upon the earth. I've learned a lot of lessons as a pastor, I guess, and one of those which has been particularly difficult is that when you try to make peace between angry and self-justifying people, you're likely to get wounded. You're likely to get bitten. You're likely to get stabbed. You know, if you forget to say one important thing, My mind is fallible. I forget a lot of things. Or if your words are somehow misinterpreted by someone who hears them, or if one side plays you against the other, which they always are wont to do, or even if your own frustration and anger and people-pleasing nature runs afoul of the situation and turns it all upside down, you're bound to be wounded. And yet, I can look at Job's promise. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that in the end, it won't be me standing in final justice. It will be Jesus who stands. And He stands there for me because the one who bought me back, He will stand in the end. And that's all that ultimately matters. You know, Job had it clarified for him by a younger advisor eventually in the book. You know this. His three long-time, apparently, friends, his fraternity brothers, came to him and offered all kinds of foolish and stupid empty words to him And finally, the kid on the block who had been listening in and hearing, Elihu, speaks up timidly and says, Hey, fellas, if you got nothing else to say, can I offer something? And do you know what he said? He said, If there's an angel on Job's side as a mediator, one out of a thousand, to tell a man what is right for him, to be gracious to him and say, Spare him from going down to the pit, for I have found a ransom for him, then... He is restored and finds favor with God. That's what came from the young guy, the new kid on the block, who'd been listening in the whole time, not saying a word, and he speaks up with that little nugget. Thank God there is such a one. 
one in a thousand, one only, who will take such a stand. When the sound of Moses rings in your ears, see Jesus through God's enduring promise. But Job's not finished, of course, because he also will see him through God's enduring mercy. Verse 26, he says, And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart faints within me. Again, I have to wonder if Job had any, any clear idea at all of what he was saying here. Speaking in a fog, maybe. His flesh was being destroyed. How could he imagine that somehow in his own flesh, with his own eyes, he would see God? Somehow in mercy, God acknowledges our need for sensory experience. Now, I know this doesn't become us Presbyterians very well. We just need to get over it. God in mercy sees our need for sensory Experience in mercy, he stoops down to us so that we might see and hear, feel and taste and touch the gospel. It's what he does, and we acknowledge it weekly here. You know, the water of baptism down there is not, it's not magical, there's nothing special about it, it's just water, but it's real. And we can feel it. You can hear it as it drips into the bowl. You can see it with your eyes. The bread and the wine of communion is not particularly unique. There's nothing magical about it. But it's real. You can taste it with your mouth. You can feel it in your hands. You can see it with your eyes. You can smell it with your nose. You know that it's there. And God in mercy knows that you need sensory experience to wrap your arms around the gospel. One of the best ordination exam questions that I ever heard was in Missouri. A pastor stood up and asked this young man about what happens at the communion table. And this young man, quick to answer, he thought he was clever. He said, nothing. Nothing happens. He just wanted to show that he wasn't Roman Catholic. He didn't believe that the bread turned into flesh, that the wine turned into blood. Nothing happens. And the pastor smiled and nodded, and he said, okay, and what else? And the young man was thoroughly confused. The pastor's point was, you're right, nothing happens at the table. But something happens at the table. Something enormous happens at the table. Something enormous happens at that bowl right there because Jesus is present. Jesus is There, he fills the bowl, he fills the bread, he fills the wine with himself because he knows that in mercy he must confirm to us his gospel through our senses. And Job knows it. Somehow Job knows it. Again, I don't know how. Job knows it. I myself will see him with my own eyes, with my eyes, not the eyes of another, But with my eyes, I'll see him. How he knows, I don't know. But if just for one moment, Job wants one thing more than anything on earth. He wants to see Jesus. How my heart yearns 
within me, how my bowels fill up, literally, he says, within me, how I, I, I long to see Jesus. When the world brings Moses to explain your troubles to you, you should be so consumed with seeing Jesus that even your troubles seem small. Joe Novenson is a Presbyterian pastor in Tennessee, and he told the story of when he was in high school, the janitor in his high school struggled with severe physical disabilities. I don't know exactly what it was. He couldn't walk straight. His arms didn't work right. He could function just enough to sweep the floor and do his janitorial duties, but his physical disabilities were just enough as well to draw the attention of teenage ridicule. You can imagine how the teenagers in the school mocked him constantly, Joe says, mercilessly. They hounded this man, and he just went about his work anyway, year in and year out. And Novenson went off to college, and he became a Christian there and felt convicted of his sin against that man from years before. So he actually went back and returned to his high school with the purpose of apologizing to this janitor. He went to find this janitor in order to say, I'm sorry. And as he sought him through the high school building looking for him, he was filled with pity pity for the janitor, and he sort of began to feel a sense of pride, thinking, how, how humble am I to go back and apologize to this man? He found him, and he apologized, and the janitor responded and completely humiliated Novenson unintentionally, simply with the words that he said. He said, I forgive you. Look, Joe, forget it. He said, with my condition, I'm so busy thinking about what I will have when I see Jesus that I don't worry about what I don't have now. Maybe Job had too much. Maybe Job had too much comfort and ease. Maybe Job had too much satisfaction at being the greatest man of all the people in the East, as Scripture tells us that he was. Maybe Job had too much success at keeping God at an arm's length. And now he knew. God is no adversary to be appeased. He is a sovereign to be trusted because he loves my soul more than he loves my surroundings. It's a fascinating story, this Job. It really is. It's, it's a, it's, it, it stands alone in Scripture. It is a fascinating picture of the gospel, a pre-Old Testament even, gospel account that sets the course for all the rest of Scripture. You have a self-justifying religious man pleading his case before his Pharisee friends and a sovereign God who will hear no self-defending sinner call him to court. God says to Job, Would you discredit my justice, Job? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? No. Because, in the words of Job, even now my witness is in heaven, my advocate is on high, my intercessor is my friend, as my eyes pour out tears to God on behalf of a man. He pleads with God as a man pleads for his friends. Do you hear how Job saw Jesus? Therefore, he says, I know, I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, He will stand upon the earth. He will stand 
I will see him, but he will stand. Job sets the stage of all of Scripture, and it's one that we all have to cross. The stage set with an enduring word, with an enduring promise, and an enduring mercy. So, when the world brings Moses to explain your troubles, see Jesus. See Jesus. Father, we pray that you would cause us to see Jesus, that you would open our eyes, force us to turn our eyes away from our ridiculous and foolish idols, our petty disturbances and troubles, that we might see Jesus and trust that he will stand upon the earth in the end in behalf of us, us sinful and broken people who need Jesus, who need you. Would you cause us to see and to believe so that we might have life in your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.